0: Welcome to the Trinity Forum Conversations podcast. In this series, we are focusing on navigating the challenges of modernity. And in our recent online conversation, Tish Harrison Warren spoke with us about the season of Advent and how it challenges modern notions of time and waiting.
1: The only way that waiting can be transformed to this thing that is full of joy, that has anticipation, that has hope, that is actually a waiting that is hopeful, and not just drudgery or or sorrow, is if the character of the one we are waiting that we are waiting for, and that or who is asking us to wait. In this case, I would say for Christians, you know, the Trinity, God Himself, is trustworthy, and if what we're waiting for is worth the wait.
0: This episode is an edited version of our online conversation from December of this year. You can find the full video of that event, as well as our full catalog of event videos at our website, ttf.org, and check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Sheree Harder.
2: The fourth Sunday before Christmas is the first day of Advent, which heralds both the beginning of the new year in the liturgical calendar as well as a time of waiting as we anticipate the incarnation the coming of God with us. It's a season of both preparation and penitence, a paradox and hope, which falls during the darkest time of the year, yet points to the coming of the light and looks back to the first coming of Christ while also anticipating his arrival. And while it's widely observed among many Christian denominations, including among Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, and other churches, It's fair to say that there remains no small amount of confusion over what the season is, what it means, or why it matters. And so it seemed a particularly apt time to ponder the spiritual significance of the season of Advent, and I'm delighted to introduce our guest today who has literally written the book on precisely that subject. Tish Harrison Warren is, I am very proud to say, a senior fellow with the Trinity Forum, as well as an Anglican priest and a writer. She has served as a columnist for the New York Times, and as well as contributing to publications as diverse as Christianity Today, Religion News Service, Art House America, Comment, The Point, and many others. And her several books include Liturgy of of the Ordinary, her very first work, which was also Christianity Today's 2018 Book of the Year, Prayer in the Night, and her new work on Advent, which we've invited her here today to discuss. Tish, welcome. Thanks. I'm always glad to
1: talk to the Trinity Forum.
2: (laughs) Well, we are really glad to get to talk with you today, uh, Tish. And so as we start out, it seems to make sense to kind of start with the basics. And I want to just call out the fact that I know we have probably watching today, everyone ranging from theologians who are deeply immersed in and experts on the meaning of Advent, uh, and people like myself, uh, with a Baptist background, where I kind of just grew up assuming that Advent was sort of a, a synonym for the Christmas season. So as we start, I thought it'd be helpful to basically just ask you, what is Advent? And what's the history? How did it come to be?
1: Yeah. So Advent, I, I am going to speak, like you said, to a broad range of people. I'm sure there are people on this call who know who know more about Advent and its history than I do. And there may be people who this is super new and think mostly of advent calendars, right? That's kind of the way that advent has made its way into kind of our popular culture. There's a there's sort of a, a new age, new agey store down the street from my house um, in Austin. We have those kinds of things that had uh, an advent calendar, which I sort of found hilarious. I was like, "Huh, this is interesting." That this is. Permeated so deeply into our culture that it's really disconnected in any way from anything like the Christian story. But Advent for the church is a liturgical season. As you said, it begins four Sundays before Christmas or the Feast of the Incarnation, the celebration of Jesus coming to earth. And it was, it's a later practice relative to Lent and Easter it came after that but Christmas was later the first time that it's mentioned in in an extant text that we have is around the 3rd century but it is sort of mentioned the date anyway was mentioned as something that sort of was broadly held so it was it was probably in wide practice before then but around the 3rd century Advent emerges soon after Christmas, so sometime around the 4th century, but it looked very different place to place. It wasn't really until the 7th century that we began to see Advent more routinized in terms of, you know, four Sundays before Christmas and so the sort of the time frame set out more clearly. And also things like the scripture readings and the themes of Advent begin to be a little more solidified. And those largely continue. I mean, that is the shape of Advent even today. But it began probably around the fourth century and very consciously as as sort of an answer to Lent. You know, Lent is to Easter Lent is a time of preparation for that feast, for that celebration. And Advent emerged as as a similar idea as kind of in in Eastern churches and Orthodox churches, it's called actually little Lent, a way to prepare for the celebration of Christmas. I think since the fourth century, Advent has changed in tone and emphasis some. So it's a little I would say it's probably more different than Lent now even than it was then but it was kind of created with that same pattern in mind.
2: Let me ask you about that. So, you know, you mentioned that it in many ways paralleled Lent, and I guess that raises the question of of why. Why did the church fathers Mm -hmm. believe that preparation, uh, in the case of Mm -hmm. both uh, Christmas and Easter, should precede celebration, and that essentially fasting should precede feasting?
1: Okay, so I think there's there's a... um theological reason. And I also think there's almost a, I don't want to separate this from theology, but I think there's kind of a deep wisdom to it. I, in a on a in a theological sense, I think there's an idea that you don't just sort of walk into the throne room of a king, right? There is this sort of sense of preparation, of, of sobriety in entering that, and in repentance, you know, that before we celebrate, we also kind of quiet our hearts and and then practice repentance, practice sort of examination of our own self so that when we enter into celebration, we're doing it with I hope not the sense that we've scrubbed ourselves clean because the gospel is that we really can't that we need rescue, but that we that we've been honest about who we are that we don't do this flippantly, we don't do this lightly, That we prepare our hearts and are truthful with ourselves and with God and with those around us about who we are and the ways we've blown it, the ways we've wronged others, the ways that we have failed to welcome the coming King into our life. And not just as individuals, but also as in systems in the world and the ways that the world does not reflect and the church does not reflect the hope we have in Jesus and the truth that we found in Jesus. So there's some, there's making theological space for repentance is always something we do before celebration or welcoming, you know, welcoming the king or welcoming the resurrection. The other thing, I think the deep sort of almost intuitive wisdom in it, I think, is that there is a sense, I think, in, a, in American culture where we want to sort of run breathlessly from celebration to celebration. We want to kind of keep going and keep things kind of busy <laughs> and up tempo. And we don't want to because it it seems it seems in some ways almost un-American. I, I think that there's a an optimism and an activism in America observed from really the very beginning that is good I mean it's it's something that's allowed it allowed people to do amazing amazing things and innovations and technology and you know walk into a vast wilderness and make you know a new country at the same time with that can come almost a a pathological optimism a toxic positivity right as the kids say now And also just an unwillingness to admit the failures, the responsibilities that we have that we have not lived up to, the ways that we have harmed others, the injustice that we have brought. And so there is something really needed, I think, by humans, by the human psyche, that it is actually sort of bad for us to attempt to run from celebration to celebration to celebration breathlessly without stopping and acknowledging And making space for uh, pain, for uh, repentance, for our own failure, for honesty. I think the sort of jollification of Christmas, the hap 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 be a season of all, can become compulsive and Mm -hmm. compulsory if it doesn't first stop and say, before we acknowledge that light has come into the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it that we need to acknowledge that there is darkness and where's the darkness in our own life? Where's the darkness in the world? But also emotionally acknowledge the pain of that, the reality of that and cry out with the psalmist, how long, O oh Lord? And I think the ancient church more, certainly more than modern evangelicalism and I would say American Christianity and, and Western Christianity in general, the ancient church did a better job in ways at being emotionally fully orbed. And I think we re- we see that in the church calendar.
2: Yeah, I mean, in a way that's fascinating, but it, it it also resonates in that, you know, we are definitely in a culture that tends to valorize getting things done, cutting through red tape, Waiting for no one, being there first, Um, (laughs) we often kind of see waiting as sort of passive or or even lazy. But so I'm curious just to kind of pull on that a a little bit to ask not only why is it important to learn to wait, but what does it mean to actually wait well? Mm -hmm. Uh, What distinguishes uh, the the person who waits wisely and well from Mm -hmm. those of us with a more sloth-like disposition?
1: (laughs) well that's interesting i think i think that can be hard i think this is partly why we need community and we need spiritual directors in our life and we need people to help us because i i do think that that sometimes slowing down could be pathological or sloth like i don't think that tends to be the struggle for a lot of americans i want to say especially kind of like achiever types but but that's possible. So we need discernment to figure out pace of life, I think is partly what we're saying. And that's going to look different, obviously, season to season and depending on what's happening in our life. And that's done with community. And that is not just a practical question. Of course, it has to do with sitting down with your calendar and figuring things out, but it does raise these deep spiritual questions of Why do we feel the need to go at such breakneck speed and pace so often? What is there a compulsiveness or a fear to that? And I think, you know, it's interesting because I, there are going to be seasons. I mean, I have three small kids. I have an elderly mom. Like I work that I, I think that we need to be realistic in the sense of I'm not saying in order to, follow Jesus this Advent, your life needs to be, you know, full of hours of contemplation, right? It needs to look monastic. But I do think that, I think think it might have been Dallas Willard that says the devil majors in noise, crowds, and hurry. And it's interesting because I would say this time of year is particularly marked by noise, crowds, and hurry. And I think pulling away from that to the opposite of that, which would be solitude, quiet, and slowness or stillness is part of the counter-cultural call of the church. Now, might that look at times slothful? May that mean that your Christmas decorations are less perfect than your neighbors. <laughs> yes, it might. But I think I think that there's something very I think there's something very holy about that, and I think in a in a culture that is frenetic, that is busy, that is addicted to efficiency and pleasure and avoids bad feelings. Uh, I'm reading an amazing book on on addiction right now, but he makes the point that American culture that most Americans are addicted to something or other, in the sense that we we do tend to have a a culture that shrinks back from facing darkness, from facing pain in some ways. And and I think I think that there is a lot of trauma. There is a lot of pain that each of us carry. And that kind of the, the unwillingness or fear of facing that really drives a lot of kind of compulsion and, and, and a lot of busyness. And so I do think that at times shrinking back might look thoughtful, but I think that's why we need, you know, Help discerning kind of what that's going to look like. Now, I feel like that was a that was a lot about the practical side, the deeper sense of waiting, and how do we do that well? I really feel like a lot of our lives are spent learning this because so much of life involves waiting. I talk in the book about a little about um, the idea of Christian waiting and mm-hmm. how it is different because we all have to wait. I mean, we've all experienced that. And I, I bring up in the book, if you've ever seen um, the movie Zootopia, which we've seen a billion times in our house, but this g- great scene where they go to the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, and it's run by sloths. And sloths, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, and I don't for our international listeners, if you've never been to an American DMV, you wait a long time. And so it's this funny, I mean, we I saw it in the theater with my kids and all the grownups in the theater were just dying. They were just laughing and the kids were like, what's going on? And it was, but I think we know that sort of drudgery of waiting and, and there's a, there is a pain, there's a toil in waiting. That's a really different sort of waiting than when you're waiting for a beloved friend or, or a spouse from the airport, you know, or like to pick them up or waiting for a baby to come or waiting for Christmas, right? The presents under the tree and the, the um, particularly children know that sort of anticipatory waiting. The difference is <laughs> in the DMV, we're not sure what we're waiting for is worth it. And we're not sure that the people we're waiting on have our best interest at heart, right? We, they, we sometimes think they may even get some uh, sick pleasure in making us sort of wait longer, right? So I think that Christian waiting actually involves a lot. It's transformed by trusting the character of the one who is asking us to wait and also believing that what we're waiting for is actually worth it. If either of those two things are not true, the character of the one who's asking us to wait is untrustworthy, or what we're waiting for is actually not all that great, then waiting should be avoided at all costs. Right? Waiting is actually, I mean, the pits who would want that. The only way that waiting can be transformed to this thing that is full of joy, that can that, that has anticipation, that has hope. That's the theme of the book, but that is actually a waiting for uh, that is hopeful and not just drudgery or, or sorrow is if the character of the one we are waiting, that we are waiting for and that, or who is asking us to wait. In this case, I would say for Christians, you know, the Trinity, God, God himself is trustworthy. And if what we're waiting for is worth the wait. And I think that is that that's kind of the place that trust and hope and the story of the gospel encounters waiting and, and sort of in encountering it transforms what it is in our posture in it
2: in your book advent seems to not only be a season of waiting but a time in which funny things happen with time uh where it seems like <laughs> you know past present and future all kind of join in a time of waiting yeah. you know, there's sort of a sense you pointed out of an interplay between the linear and the eternal you know we're, we're waiting in anticipation of that which has already happened as well as celebrating a coming that has not yet happened which you know mentioned it, it could be paradoxical, it could also just be rather perplexing. And so kind of wanted to ask you, since you've given a great deal of thought to this, for you know, we, you know, a bunch of time-bound creatures, what is Advent showing us or telling us about time?
1: Yeah. I'm I'm a little obsessed with the idea of time. I'm I'm realizing in all of my work that keeps that theme keeps coming up. And I think it's cause I don't know how to live in it well. I'm <laughs> I'm always struggling with it and always late. and and I also think our approach to time does reveal our trust. This goes back a little bit to your question on on how do we know, you know, the pay like what is when to slow down and when not to? is is the deeper sort of theological questions in that time and the way we spend time, raises all these deeper questions of our heart and our allegiance, just in the way that money does, right? The way we spend money. And I think there's a great book called, I think it is called Opening the Gift of the Day. I'm sorry that I I don't remember the exact name. It's by Dorothy Bass, who's a great theologian, who I really appreciate. That's all about time, and she talks about in it how we tend in our culture to see time as something that we have to conquer, that we have to manage, that we can put, you know, in our phone or in a calendar. And this is something that that we, it, it, there's almost a, a competitive relationship, it feels like, between us and time. We never have enough. We're trying to win over time. When in reality, time is time calls the shots, right? Like time is something that, that as creatures we are much more beholden to, but that we receive as a gift. We receive every day of our life as a gift. And so the difference between that, between what it means to approach time as a consumer or a conqueror versus someone who can receive time is something that I think that I'm sort of chasing after in my life and really, really haven't figured out that but i think that's something i want to learn and grow into there's of course lots of practices in the church that that gesture to this like the sabbath keeping and you know even fasting and some things like that sort of play with our idea of time but i think one of the chief ways that's done is the christian calendar where time itself becomes this disciple this this way of entering the story there's different ways of talking about time there's Chronos, which is sort of the way we experience linear time, moment after moment after moment, we can plot it on a calendar. We can measure it in seconds. Any measurable time is chronos. There's other Greek word, Kairos, which is sort of the fullness of time. Which this book is part of a series, which is called the Fullness of Time series, and it walks through the whole Christian calendar. And and it's it's a team. We're doing it together, a team of writers. So Kairos are these moments that feel like when people talk about a time outside of time, there's sort of, that's kind of Kairos time. If you've ever been around a birth or death, if you've ever been in in a, a time of like great beauty, there's, these are the moments where you're talking with a friend and you're sitting around and people are having drinks and there's this joy. um, And all of a sudden you look up and it's 1 AM, you know, and it looked and it felt like that only took 10 minutes, you know, where it just time shifts and it feels shorter, it feels fuller. And so these, these sort of watershed moments. And um, what's interesting is that the church calendar is a way we use, you know, chronological time, chronos weeks and days that we can measure to try to enter into, in some sense, this eternal story that is outside of time, this Kairos time. And so because of that, Advent holds together past, present, and future in this really interesting way, past being that we imaginatively and immersively kind of enter the story of the prehistory of Christ, the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament those are different terms for that. But this, from the creation of the world to kind of the waiting of, of the fall, you know, creation and fall and the waiting for redemption. Also the story of the incarnate, you know, we're waiting for Christ to come we're, and, and Christmas does that, right, brings the incarnation and we celebrate it again. We celebrate it like it's today, right? So there's the past, there's the future, because historically, the main focus of Advent, the primary focus of Advent, wasn't waiting for Christmas. It was waiting for the final return of Christ, where Christ comes not as a baby, but as like this reigning king, right? The new heavens and new earth, right? The hope of the world to come, as we say in the Creed. So we are the life of the world to come. So we're waiting for the second coming of Christ or the final coming of Christ, and then so those are two ways that we're waiting in the past, waiting in the future. But Advent is also about seeing the places we need the incarnation, we need Jesus to come in the present, right through the person of the Holy Spirit. So Advent, for those um, who don't know, means coming and um, we're wait- or arrival. We're waiting for a coming and arrival. And I talk in the book about the three comings of Advent, that, you know, Christ came as a baby, Christ will come again. But now, even now, we need, pla- there are relationships in our life that feel really broken. There are places of addiction or sin or struggle, anxiety. There are places in our world, places of violence, obviously, like profound conflict and violence that we're seeing in Israel and Palestine, profound violence and war we're seeing in Russia and Ukraine, these places that we need the coming of Christ. Even now we need Christ in the present and um, kind of before we turn and proclaim, you know, the Prince of peace, you know, goodwill to all and the Prince of Jesus is the Prince of peace who has come. And, you know, before, we do that we stop and say like where do we where do we need the prince of peace now right where where is is that does that reality feel like already but not yet so in that sense advent holds together that christ has come christ will come again and christ is now coming to us like he he doesn't stop coming to us and so it holds together these three different Advents, these past, present, and future in this unique way. I think the whole church calendar does, but Advent does in a particularly interesting
2: way. Mm-hmm. I have to ask, you've now written a book about Advent. You've had several columns in the New York Times about Advent. <laughs> so how do you and your family observe Advent?
1: Yeah, I didn't mean to become like an expert on Advent. I really didn't. I I mean, I like Advent, but I, you know, I like lots of other things just as much. But I, it it does seem like a particularly count. I I think I'm drawn to the countercultural sense of it, particularly within the context of American consumerism, which I didn't get to a lot. But could talk, you know, it it just seems like such a weird um, time in our in a sort of American Christmas to, for the church to say, we're going to go off and fast and reflect and repent, you know? So how do we do that? I mean, that has looked really different year to year. And I I don't want to be overly prescriptive because it is easy because I have a book on it to be like, this is the right way to practice Advent. I don't, I don't actually think there's a, a necessarily a right way to practice Advent. I think it's an invitation. The point of Advent is never Advent. The point of Advent is to prepare our hearts to receive Jesus. And so anything that feels like a overly burdensome or that would embitter us to the practice, I think we shed and that's fine. It's not, this is not a requirement. It's an invitation. So, so but some of the ways that we practice it, um, yeah, I mean, we, we do Advent calendars. Advent calendars, by the way, are the extremely new. <laughs> they really came in the... the I found out in the researching this book, like in the 20th century, but we do that mostly because I have small children. And so it's a way to kind of involve them in the anticipation of Christmas. We do that. We, we do that alongside an Advent wreath, which we haven't set up yet. We'll set up this weekend, but we light candles and then we have a devotion that we read as a family. Just, We've done different ones, different years, but we have an Advent Divisional that we read. It's a way to sort of get our kids into the story of, of kind of the prehistory of Christ, waiting for Jesus to come, but also to get us, to get our hearts into that. I think some a lot of us are familiar with those practices, all of which we do. I think some other ways that we practice Advent that are actually the historic practices of Advent Historically, it was fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. And so carving out specific ways of fasting from food, literally, you know, kind of a literal fast or smaller portions, but also fasting from things like screens, right? Or social media or the kind of the same, some of the similar ways you might practice Lent, you, you do an Advent. I also think making... Particular time for prayer and reflection and stillness. I think we're really tired this time of year, so Advent. It seems like this gift from the church to say it's okay to slow down. It's okay, and it, I love that Advent. It's the beginning of the Christian year. It's the for it's Christian New Year's, but it's the end of kind of the Gregorian calendar, and so it's in this interesting liminal space where we can reflect on the year behind us, the ways that we've met God the ways that we have found beauty but also the ways that we have had pain or had loss this year but uh, and look ahead to the ways where do we need Christ to come in this next year where do we need healing where do we find hope you know where in this in this next season of our life so i think we have a little church plant we are doing a specific day of kind of quiet and inviting people to a time of of reflection. And I think making space for prayer, reflection, repentance, obviously it's a penitential season, taking stock of one's life. But yeah, I think fasting and then fasting historically is always tied with seeking justice, right? With almsgiving, with with you feel the hunger of those who hunger, but then you turn around and seek to alleviate that in some way. And so Those are some ways that we practice Advent. I just also want to say if one slows down over, and so one of the practical ways we do that actually is I'm trying to get almost all our Christmas shopping done before Advent so that Advent can be kind of a space, kind of a slower pace. I haven't always been able to do that and it can end up being a really kind of hectic time and i just i try to resist that this is particularly difficult if you're a student or professor because the the academic calendar really works against the the christian calendar in this way i acknowledge there's going to feel a tension here and i think that's okay but i do think we as a family try to just make it a more spacious season and and for re- reflection and prayer and fasting in particular. Yeah. As promised, Tish, the
2: last word is yours.
1: All right. I thought since you told me I had the last word, I would just read some of the last words of this book. But I'm going to start with a quote by Karl Barth, who wrote, what other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? I think what he meant there is that we all live in the already, not yet. We all live between Christ coming and Christ coming again. We're all in Advent every day of our lives, even outside of Advent season. So at the very end of the book, I say, in light of that, someday all our Advents will end. The wait will be over, the Lord will come. Yet all of our waiting, our struggles and sorrows, our doubts and fears, our days and weeks, will be a vital part of the story. It will be part of the hallelujah that echoes from a creation that once groaned. It will be part of the restoration of all things. It will be part of what is being born. Until then, we live each minute of our lives between Jesus's first advent in the nativity and his final advent. Until then, we dwell in liminality in the meantime. As we both enjoy and endure this meantime, with all its beauty and suffering, with its bright sadness, Advent, like so many other spiritual practices, is merely a tool. It is meant to teach us how to live in hope and to trust and love the object of our hope. It is merely a tool, but it is one that has proven useful across many generations and many lives. May it prove useful in ours as well. Blessed
2: Advent to you. Thank you, Tish. Thank you to all of you for joining
0: us. Happy Advent. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on navigating the challenges of modernity. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.